I think it's time for us to start asking this most important question in my mind. And that mm. question is Robert Townsend, great American filmmaker or Robert Townsend, greatest American filmmaker. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Too long have we denied. Wow. Okay. The greatness that is Robert Townsend. <laughs> Welcome to Open Form. I'm Michael Denzel Smith. Inspired by the real-life stories of The Temptations, The Dells, Wilson Pickett, Frankie Lyman, and other R&B legends, this fictional quintet goes through the ups and downs of a Black musical act in the 1960s and beyond, forging bonds of friendship that are challenged but never broken. This week's film is The Five Heartbeats, and it was chosen by Nate Marshall, the award-winning poet and author of the collections Wild Hundreds and Finna. Okay, so first off, a Chicago legend. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm mm-hmm. I'm very biased uh, to the hometown, uh, but he he has like a small. I think he's uncredited, but he has a small role in uh, what's that movie? Cooley High. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. in that for like a hot second, um, it, like at, as a super young dude. But then also like, if you've ever seen um, Hollywood Shuffle, like it's yeah. such a dope, such a brilliant understanding of okay, how, how is it that Hollywood puts Black actors and, mm-hmm. and Black makers into these sort of boxes, right? Um, regardless of what the complexity of that experience is, right? Like, he, he's able to do this stuff that is simultaneously, like, so smart and so funny mm-hmm. and also so heartfelt mm-hmm. in a way that's just, like, great. Um, so, like, for me, like, the trilogy of films from, like, Hollywood Shuffle to the five heartbeats to uh meteor man uh <laughs> yeah. the legend it's just like it's kind of unimpeachable like you kind of can't convince me that all those movies aren't like worth their weight in gold yeah <laughs> okay so what what for you is the the specialness of the five heartbeats man what isn't the specialness of the five <laughs> heartbeats okay so first off there's like I mean, the music is great, right? The music's incredible. The music, the music's incredible. And the thing that I, the thing that I sort of hate but also respect about it is the music in the film. It like it's the music in the film, right? Because if you listen mm-hmm. to like the soundtrack, mm-hmm. they have these versions of them, but they're versions that are very like sort of late '80s, early '90s kind of synthy. Yeah, and so they're not using like the sort of real instrumentation in the way that you hear in the film. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, especially for a movie that's like built around music in that way and has such great voices, the soundtrack is kind of whack mm-hmm. in comparison to what happens on screen. Mm-hmm. But like, you know, the music is great. Uh, Big Red is like kind of an all time great black villain. Just a gangster. Just a, just a gangster. Like <laughs> my office hours. from. <laughs> like come on like who's that dude is terrifying like dude is he's he's yeah yeah, it comes he comes on like unassuming you kind of know that he's going to be like this big villain kind of just because his presence his physical presence but he's just like i'm just a country boy with the the record label like i do work hard for my artists like i I love his his whole affect is like great (laughs) 
now, if you have any other problems with your royalties and my books, my office hours are from. My office hours are from. You get Diane Carroll, who's just like, oh. man, like so lovely. Like, yeah. he, like incredible. Um, I love us. What's the dude? Sarge, who's like the dance coach. Mm-hmm. Harold Nicholas. Yeah. Yeah. Because he, he's just like, he's like super small and always trying to fight somebody. Mm-hmm. And he's like, y'all don't know. Like, when I was in the war, like, that yeah. shit is just, he's, he's a joy. Um, I mean, like, Eddie Kane Jr. is like maybe one of the most, like, heartbreaking characters in black cinema history. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like he's definitely on that list. I know this might be an unpopular opinion, but I sort of love like biopics, mm. and particularly like biopics of musicians. And, but I think that there's something that the Five Heartbeats is able to achieve by virtue of being like an invented group or a fake mm-hmm. group, mm-hmm. Um, and that they're able to hit some of the big, some of the big sweeps of those kinds of films. That, you know, like the Temptations movie and Ray and the Jackson 5 joint, and like all in the James Brown joint, like all these things kind of approach. Yeah. But they either can't do it because they're just bound by what has happened. Yeah. Um, but you get to see this thing in the sense of like, oh, here how here's how like the music is sort of changing over time, like over these decades. Um, here's like hear the sort of racial politics of what it means to become a pop act. Um, even like that great moment of like the first time they hear themselves on the radio and they're like dancing around in their pajamas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like a movie that has, I'd rewatch this movie like basically a few times a year. Mm. And it occurs to me that there are some ways in which it's very light, like on certain kinds of like character development and like, certain kinds of story, but it doesn't matter because the movie just has such a heart that it, that it, that buoys it through. Yeah. 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 You know, and it's, it's pulling from all of these different stories of acts from that time. It is like largely based on temptations. It's Robert Townsend, like trying to, I mean, I don't know if you watched the, you probably have as a big fan of this, the making of five heartbeats. I was just trying to figure out why the temptations broke up, you know, and, and then that becomes the, 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 uh, genesis of the film but then the Dells come on as consultants and he incorporates some of their story the yeah. you know big red hanging uh, bird over the the balcony that's apparently uh what happened to jackie wilson uh, at one point yeah. um so it's it's like and vanilla a- ice and Vanilla Ice. Yes, black music legend Vanilla Ice. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this amalgamation of all of these different stories uh that are like feel like just the heartbeat of black America in this way. And that's brings me to a question. Do you remember the first time that you saw Five Heartbeats? Because I was trying to think of it. And I'm just like, in my consciousness, it's just like it has always existed, right? Like, it, it's not something that I feel like I was introduced to. Like, I feel like I probably heard somebody say, can't nobody sing like Eddie Kang Jr. before I even saw the Five Heartbeats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, I was thinking about this before we got on, and I don't know. I think it, it was one of these things that maybe 
like it maybe took me until I was an adult or close to it to really watch all the mm. way through and pay attention to. But I'm sure that I had like seen large swaths of it and probably had seen the whole movie, but mm-hmm. not in like a conscious way. Right. Just growing up. It was just like one of those things that's in the ether. And then I was also thinking about, there's like an old comment. It's from either the first or second album. It might be the song like Communism or something. But there's an old common song where he sort of, he riffs on um, that bit, that sort of chilling big red line of my office out. He's, mm. He says something like, my office out, start from nine to five. While you ride the party, I make it live or something like that. And, and, I, and I'm like, damn, did I hear that common first? Or mm. did I listen to, did, mm-hmm. I, did I watch the five heartbeats first? Yeah. Like, w- which was the, what was referencing what to me initially? Yeah. And, I, and I don't know. It's like, uh, it's impossible to sort of parse. Because it's just, it just now is this like true black cultural touchstone, right? Like, just yeah. like permeates everything. And I think, you know, and for me, it's like, it announces itself as like very rooted in blackness from the beginning. But I think the moment where I'm just like, oh, white audiences might not know what the fuck is going on here. And it's it's a very small moment for I think in terms of like it's not a moment that's building anything in the film, but it's uh, they're backstage about to perform uh, at the talent show, choir boys all nervous, remembering the last time they performed, and and like he's like, and they called me a little peanut head uh, church boy, and it's just like yeah. peanut head is such a specific insult, and I don't know why I find it funny every time I hear it, but I just will laugh every single time. But it's just like, these are the sort of like specifically black things that are happening in this film that I think like a lot of us just latch on to. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Sick of your shit, duck. Look, you already ripped my jacket. What's wrong with you, huh? I'm sick of your shit too, JT. You're not gonna do it right, then don't do it at all. Oh, hold. Wait a minute, duck's right now, man. If we ain't gonna do it right, then let's not do it at all. Break down! I think Peanut Head is like, has not ever like cross the color line. Like I don't think anyone black has ever called someone a peanut head in the in the history in American history. <laughs> I feel I feel confident in saying that. That's a scientific fact. People. <laughs> Sorry. I don't make the rules. I tell you the thing I think about all the time in it like if I had to I mean there's a million like quotable quotable sort of moments from the joint but the one that really sticks to me especially as like a black artist mm is when they get their record for the first time. Yeah. And it's this, like, sort of cheesy, generic, white mm-hmm. teenagers, like, on the co- cover, like, at the beach. Yeah. Which actually happened um, to the Dells. This is where that, yeah. that came from. Yeah. I mean, that's... It, it's a real thing, right? Like, that's a real thing. But I but I think about the speech that... I think it's Eddie. I think it's Eddie Kane. Where, that he gives in that moment mm-hmm. of sort of being, like... Or, no, it's not Eddie Kane. It's uh, JT. It's um, both they, of them. They, they sort of right. Like they both kind of yeah. 
but it's like you know crossover ain't no, nothing but a double cross like mm-hmm. what they can accept our music as long as they can't see our faces yeah. but like that real sense of like heartbreak that you see them mm-hmm. like live through and express is like I don't know I just think about it it's so much of what it means to be a black artist that is yeah like creating in in somewhat mainstream spaces whether that's you know having a book deal at Penguin Random House or Harper Collins or whatever or or it's you know teaching out of you know in higher education or whatever right yeah. A very real question about like, why are we always crossing over to them? No one is attempting to win us, right? Like, what is what is it about? There's an inherent perceived deficiency on the part of the Black artist that they must then adapt to and try to win over the quote-unquote mainstream, just meaning white people, where white people have no, no obligation to do that kind of work. Yeah, and, and I mean, even still, like when we talk about diversity right this and i've become sort of discontented with the ways in which we discuss these kinds of things in our society because it feels like what we're always talking about is how do we make space in these sort of white spaces for people who aren't white Mm -hmm. or how do we make space in these kind of like straight spaces or hetero institutions for Mm -hmm. folks who are not straight et cetera, et cetera. And it's just like, and the thing that I think folks miss, and in particular, maybe folks who find themselves in the majority, whatever that is, mm-hmm. like in the sort of power majority, is nobody wants to be, like those guys don't want to be in the mainstream because they give a shit about what white people think about their mm-hmm. music. They, they in many ways, really couldn't care less. Mm-hmm. You know, what they what they want is the the sort of, the dollars and the financial stability exactly. that that those things allow, right? And I think this is like a thing I've often, like sometimes when I'm having you know conversations with like white friends, like a, a thing that I that I think we're often bu- bumping up against is that I really have to try to break down for them. Like nobody wants to be close to anything white because it's inherently better. It is in right. fact not. Right. The reason why p- folks desire these sort of proximities to whiteness, whatever that means, right, mm-hmm. professionally, artistically, whatever, is because those things may give people the ability to make a life, may give them more security, right. may give them more stability. It's a co- it's a complicated nuance. It's a it's a nuanced thing to articulate, yeah. and I think it also is a thing that's difficult to articulate to anyone white because I think often white people have been trained in their bones, regardless of how anti-racist they are, how many friends of color they have, whatever. Mm-hmm. Many, I find, do, like, at some central level, believe white things to be just a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole of the, the sort of debate of what was at the core of the activism around what, you know, we call the civil rights movement. It's like, do are we trying to integrate because it's just, like, it's better to be around white people? or like, And that, that like... White people are doing the right thing during that time, some of them, and saying, like, yes, we should break down these barriers because it's good for them to get exposure to us and, and our things and our culture. And it's just like, yeah. no, you just have more resources, right? Like, right. It, <laughs> right. And it's like, look, nobody wanted to be in the major leagues instead of the Negro leagues yeah. because they thought 
those fans were better. They thought those players were better, whatever. The checks were nicer. Exactly. The, just period. The checks were nicer. The stadiums were more well taken care of. The uniforms were crisper. Yeah. Right. And that doesn't come down to like anything being better except the money. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like it all comes down to like who, yeah. who controls resources. Yeah. Tell them about Jimmy's accident. Tell them about your deal with that red son of a bitch. Tell them. Oh, God, I didn't know. Two performances that I really want to talk about, two different actors that are just the heart of this movie to me, or or at least, like, well, let me say, you mentioned Eddie Kang Jr., and and no one says Eddie King, right? It's it's just Eddie Kang, and I just, I I love us so much, Um, but Michael Wright, when you talk about, like, how heartbreaking that character is. I mean, he is so, like, his look and his embodiment of it, I'm just looking at him and I'm like, and going back to sort of that that question of crossing over, I'm just like, this is a man, this is an actor who should be right there in a conversation with Daniel Day-Lewis, right? Mm-hmm. Like, in terms of being a method actor, embodying that character, like, truly plumbing the depths of human emotion right yeah. like and doing it with subtlety and and getting all of the big moments and everything and i'm just like i'm in awe of him like like and, yeah. and i'm just like so why did that not translate into more of the, like he gets a, a role in like sugar hill later but it's just like he doesn't build a career that i feel like he should have had you know, I think so much of it comes down to, and you know, maybe because like I think things have, without putting any sort of value judgment on this, I think things have changed a tremendous amount in the mm-hmm. media landscape over that, let's say, thirty year span from that film to now, right? Yeah. And so, I think sometimes it's, we really underestimate or it's hard to wrap our minds around the the dearth of opportunities, yeah, uh, for Black actors and for Black filmmakers in that moment of the early nineties. Right. Especially then. Right. Like I think about like, I even think, I, you know, I'm thinking about like, cause this is sort of around the time that like Denzel gets the Oscar for glory. Yeah. And I'm like, well, shit, why did Denzel get the Oscar for glory? And it's like, Oh, because well, was it like Matthew Broderick, whatever is like the, like <laughs> yeah. white dude who's like the commanding officer is because like this movie is sort of built around these white people and but really what they become is this like capsule for all these like incredible black performances, be it mm-hmm. Denzel or Morgan Freeman or whomever. Right. But like, you know, this is really a moment at which we were unable to see any kind of artistic excellence, particularly in film, like on the silver screen um, without the, some whiteness to kind of make right. it acceptable. Right? right. Like it's not lost on me that if you think about all of the, like the, the role that Portier wins the, you know, wins the Oscar for, mm. um, even even all up to like Monsters Ball, right, where H- Hallie wins the Oscar. Like, uh, they are they are stories that are built around white characters. Yeah, and this was not. This was really just like black folks doing like telling a black story well. And I just don't think the American imag- imagination had much. 
They just didn't know what to do with that. They didn't know. Yeah. They, they couldn't. It, it's, it's, it's saying essentially like for all of the depth of that performance, it's still just rendered within the concept of like uh, the imaginary blackness and just like that. He exists as that, and therefore it is, it is yeah. nothing to it for him. Yeah, and especially, right, with, if we're talking about, like, Black people struggling with addiction, right? And, I, mm-hmm. you know, I have, a, I have a, like, a long history of addiction in my own family. Yeah. But I think about so much of the pathologies that, we, that were really made rock solid in that historical moment. So much of that is about, like, this belief that every Black person, that the Black communities are, one, filled with addicts, and those, that those people are only and primarily addicts, right? Mm-hmm. That the only thing sort of about them as people is their addiction and and two that that is like a kind of natural state for them yeah and so i think given that like people don't give as much credit or credence or whatever to um to like the real depth that he's going into and like Mm -hmm. playing that role of this person we see both like growing in addiction and ultimately we get to see like recovered or redeemed yeah, in this way redemption that like uh that we don't say in the in the story of, like the temptations right that that execs tried to cut from the film <laughs> they, they tried to cut the church scene at the end when he, we see him recover and say that yeah. they didn't need that and just like no this is like this is power right here right like this is the power yeah. of this moment <laughs> but yeah we want to see flash JT, the girls are all so excited. I'm sorry, but they won't be watching Flash and Miles. JT, leave those kids alone. If they want to watch that, it's okay. That's junk. That's not music. I can't have them listening to that stuff. Well, why don't you show them what real music is? You ain't said nothing but a word. Heartbeats, front and center. You know, and I want to say this too, because this is not all on white folks or all on like non-black folks in the sense of, like I think about, how many times as a kid or as a younger person I watched the Eddie Kane piece like and laughed at it. And, and not just mm-hmm. that laughter is a bad thing, but like, yeah. you know, thought about it in this kind of one dimensional way where he's like, yeah. nights like this. And he's like in his kind of dirty old jumpsuit yeah. and being like, does it look like I have a phone or whatever? And like, yeah, I don't know. You know, it makes, I don't know. It really makes me grieve at some of the ways that we, as a country, as a culture, like really we're trained to see like people who suffer with addiction as like one dimensional and yeah. as, you know, figures to laugh at or be afraid of, but never to like empathize yeah. with or attempt to understand. And that's born of like, I feel like our, our own discomfort and then like that discomfort then translating to dehumanization, right? Like we're just like, yeah. we're just like, I can't, I don't want to feel anything about this because what it's making me feel is too complicated and I don't want to have to deal with those things. And the way to distance is to say that that's something that exists outside of myself, that exists outside of my community. Uh, this is this is something like this. And then you make fun of it, right? Like you're saying, like, we, we all sort of laughed at that moment because it's like, oh, I, I know that person. I'm like, I, and I watch it now and I'm like, no, that's kind of like my uncle. Right, like, yeah. like my uncle had a voice and could sing and all. Like, he never got a redemption arc, right? And and I feel like I'm I'm trying to to parse that now as as an adult. But watching those scenes then, when like you know, especially 
you know the nineties, we're talking about like deaf comedy jam making fun of uh, you know crackheads crack crack and all that stuff. And all that. Yeah. You know, like and, and it, yeah, it's just that yeah. that discomfort. And there's a history of that, right? Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I think about like, you know, prior, you know, the sort of famous prior bit or or but all I of that. Like and, that's that, but that with prior though, it, it's like that internal sort of reckoning with himself, yeah. right? And doing that on stage, where where it's just like he's letting us in on it in a tragic comic way, whereby yeah. it's like, what if we were, like, and people were, but it's like it feels different when everybody else is yeah. doing the. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a sort of more contemporary correlate, but I think about um, what is it? Kevin Hart's laugh at my pain, pain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is. Like maybe the only good Kevin Hart stand up. Sorry, I mean I don't. Kevin Hart is like he makes me chuckle, but he makes know, me chuckle. But he's got one thing now. It's just like I'm little. Yeah, he. You know, like let let let's be clear. Kevin Hart can't touch the hem of the garment of you know Pryor or Rock mm-hmm. or you know early Chappelle, like all these things. But like, yeah, it, so so much. I think we're often we're laughing or we create jokes out of these like really tragic figures. And and maybe like, maybe I shouldn't be hard on this sort of earlier version of myself. Cause I don't think that laughter was just like, uh, that shit is funny. I think that laughter was like more complicated. It was like, yeah, like yeah. this, this reflects people in my community, right? Like I, I know what it's like to have family members or neighbors or whomever show up at some shit drunk mm-hmm. at their head or blitzed or what, mm-hmm. whatever. And not, and not have these kind of redemption yeah. arcs, right? Yeah. What is a man? Someone who will not walk away from life's responsibilities. Jimmy Potter is a true example of what a man should be. Yes. He will be missed dearly. Let's talk about the legend, Leon. Yes. Because Leon... I mean, it's in this film, it's in when he does David Ruffin in The Temptations, when he does Little Richard, when he shows up in Waiting to Exhale. Like, I feel like I'm, what Leon is, is suave misogyny. Yeah. He is, he is yeah. he, like, that's what he, like, Leon, one, is too good looking. Right, like he's just too good looking, and that's why he gets away with some of the thing, like the weak rap, the weak rap that JT has in his movie. (laughs) But when you look like Leon, he gets away with like also like just having one name. Like you can't, you can't be like a okay, like okay, like. I'm not an ugly dude, but I'm not I'm not one name attractive. You know what I'm saying? Like like you gotta be a certain you gotta really right. have it to be like and not even not even like a name that's not that like Leon is like a relatively common black name. Yeah. Like I've known I've known a dozen Leons in my life. Right. So to just be like, yeah, my name, that's like saying like, my name is Paul. <laughs> like you really got to be fine as hell to, for people to just like, let that ride. Just like, that's Paul. But he had such a great run. I, actually, and actually, I want to, I want to revise this, right? Big Red is, is a villain, is a great villain in a sense of like, just being terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like among the scarier 
black characters I can think of. Like I think of like him. I think of um, a bunch of characters from New Jack City, right? Like, <laughs> but he's like in that pantheon, like mm. like Wesley or whatever. But JT might be the real villain. Oh yeah, that, maybe that's it, that. I don't know if that's a hot take, but like JT is is the real villain. Of oh, the absolutely. I mean, it, it is because of JT that the the five heartbeats ends. Right, yeah. like they're, they're the group ends because it's like, man, you slept with your brother, <laughs> you slept with your brother's fiance, right? And it's a pattern, like it's just everything about it is foul. Oh man, it's oh, so foul. It's, it just is Leon's, like, like I don't know, it's his role now, just for everything, <laughs> right? Like you, when Leon shows up, you know this dude ain't shit, and he' about to ruin somebody's life. Yeah, it's just like sex and mayhem. <laughs> Which honestly, like, is kind of like great. Like, isn't that sort of what you want in every film? Like, you need you need someone to have that energy, Someone's and maybe nobody it. ever carried it better than him. Someone's got to do it, and and it's it's seductive because one because Leon is so so fine, right? Like he, he just <laughs> is. Yes, it's yes. seductive, but he's got that. He but he has that that. Thing, that that charm, that charisma, his pre- his screen yeah. presence, like he knows how to carry it too, to make you then yeah. like hate, but then like still be rooting for this character that you know you don't want to, that you know if you met that yeah. if you met that man in in real life, you'd be wanting to punch him. Yeah, but you, you know what makes this makes me think about. I think I saw a relatively recent interview of him where he said, or where it was revealed that the point in the Temptations movie where he says, like, ain't nobody coming to see you, Otis, <laughs> yeah. was, was an improvised moment. Makes sense. And, <laughs> right, and it, it makes sense, but it's also, like, like, one, it makes me wonder if there are any points in this movie like that mm. where mm. he was, yeah, where he was riffing. And yeah. like get just really like playing and like sitting in that character, but it also it also like reveals like how good he is at channeling this particular kind of character. Yeah, because like man, that like that might be the most iconic line of that whole film, and that it was just like something that he just like sort of threw in. He, is wild. He knows who he is. He knows who his characters are. <laughs> like that, that's, yeah. And it's a mark of a, a talent, man. It's, it's a real talent. Yeah. You don't tell me what's going on right now, okay? I mean, first you two are just going out with each other. That's fine. But now you're taking this too far. You're talking about marrying my brother. I can't let you have my brother. You hear me? I can't. I want you to call Duck. And I want you to tell him this thing is off. You hear me? Why? Because you don't love him, that's why. So there's another villain that we haven't talked about. Okay. Flash. Yes, you have a personal connection to Flash. Oh, yes, yes. I So my so my partner, um, Flash is her mom's, like, first, first cousin. Like, they're, like, relatively close cousins. Mm. Allison was telling me about, like, at some point when dude came and, like, stayed with them for weeks at a time in St. Louis mm-hmm. and eventually him, her mom was like like he, he was just like kind of a chaotic dude <laughs> and her mom was like fam you got you gotta go <laughs> like, you, I, like I, I love you cousin like you gotta be out um but he's just like that kind of dude like he mm-hmm. like 
So I don't know. I, I still haven't met him, but I'm very much like, hey, look, girl, like we got to invite this man to like a wedding, a, like, <laughs> holiday, something like, and just let him hang around. Like, I know he's going to get chaotic, but like, I mean, also he's like probably like almost 70 now. Yeah, so how chaotic can it be? Like, I'm trying to hang out with the I legend. Don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> Some elderly folks getting, getting hectic right. out of here. Right, I'm trying to be an ebony spark. <laughs> so, so Flash as a villain, you're saying you you. Well, it's well, just thinking about those three, like Flash, JT, and Big Red, mm. as different kinds of of villains, is very for me like really interesting, right? Because you have Big Red, who is this particular vision of a kind of like slick, evil, ruthless, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. I mean, it's also it's also not lost to me that they make all the villains kind of like good looking in a way, and mm. I think that that's like cool. Mm. Yeah, and then Flash is just this like eminently vain, mm-hmm. and he's just like he's the one I think. How can I say? Like, you come out of the film feeling like, oh, this dude is like like the thing that defines him more than anything is like that he's just fake, yeah. like that it's that he that he is. It's fake, and he is he is a kind of consummate opportunist, right? Right. You know, when he sort of worms his way into joining the heartbeats, mm-hmm. um, to like when he when he leaves right before leaves. the group kind of yeah, my album like, comes right out in two weeks, like... right? Two weeks, it's like, <laughs> but that stuff really happened. Like people really did did shit like that. Like they would record whole solo albums in secret and be like, "It's lonely." the top and then at the mm. end when you see him when they're at the cookout yeah and he's like on the tv with these like white with the white horsemen the horsemen from the horsemen oh yeah. man <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm just i'm i'm interested in that like sort of tripartite terrible like what a great like triumvirate of villains Nate, what is one lasting image that sticks with you from the five heartbeats? Oh, there's so many. Oh man. Uh, I guess if I if I have to pick one, if I have to pick just one, I will say we talked about when they when they get their album cover. Yeah. And we see this album cover with the white folks on it and you know, whatever. Um, but when they sort of fling it, I think it's I think Duck like takes it, he laughs, and he kind of looks at it, and he flings it in the air. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I always think about that, because I, I feel like I don't know if, like, there's a Black artist, and maybe not a Black person who, like, has had to, like, work and survive in this country who has never had, like, that that duck moment of, like, flinging your proverbial album in the air. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I've made this thing that I'm immensely proud of, and that I've poured, it's all I've wanted. It's, like, what I've poured myself into but this power structure has, you know, done its sort of dandest to, to, to strip whatever joy or ownership I can feel yeah. from that thing. And that's just like, like there are, there are a million heartbreaking or like uplifting or hilarious moments in that. But like there, for me, there's maybe no moment that's like as personally affected as yeah. like seeing him just, just like be so crushed. <laughs> Nate, thanks so much for joining Yeah, thank you. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening to Open Forum, a podcast from Lit Hub Radio, produced by Justin Alvarez and hosted by me, Michael Denzel Smith. Feel free to like, comment, and subscribe to Open Forum wherever you get your podcasts, and or sign up for the Lit Hub newsletter to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Next week, the semi-autobiographical tale of a Korean immigrant family attempting to live the American dream in 1980s Arkansas.